Well, hey, welcome to Easter at First Church. We are so glad that you chose to worship with us here today. It looks like we have an incredible crowd here in this service, and I know we have hundreds of people who are worshiping with us online right now as well. So if you are here in person, would you put your hands together and give a loud Easter welcome to our online family? So glad you guys are joining us. And we are celebrating today because Jesus is alive. And because he is alive, hope is alive. See, we're not celebrating just an event that happened in history. No, we're celebrating a day that changed every other day. A moment in time that forever changed time. Today, we are celebrating the fact that Jesus overthrew the grave. And because he has overthrown the grave, we now have access to life beyond the grave. And I think we need sometimes to be reminded of the hope that we have in him, the hope that he gave to the world on this day some 2,000 years ago. I don't know about you, but I like a good practical joke. And a few years ago, I was on YouTube and I was watching this guy who designed a costume that looked like his, the seat of his car. And so he would drive around and it looked as if that the car was driving itself. And he decided to put this to the test going through a restaurant drive through And I want you to take a look at what happened. Yo. Isn't that great? I love that. How many of you guys want to try that sometime? Wouldn't that be cool? Yeah, might get in trouble. I don't know. But I love that video, one, because I love seeing the reactions of people. But I also like that video because it reminds me of a key truth in life, and it's this. Things are not always what they seem. And that was the case. That was the situation for the first Easter morning. John, one of Jesus' closest friends and disciples, tells what happened on this morning like this. He writes in John chapter 20, verse 1, Early on the first day of the week, early on Sunday morning, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. It was still dark on that first Easter morning for Mary, not just because the sun hadn't come up yet, but also because Mary had experienced some of the darkest days in her life here recently. See, Mary lived a sordid past, a questionable past. She had a reputation. She was known for her mistakes. And everybody looked at her a certain way. That was until this man named Jesus came along. And Jesus, well, he valued her when no one else did. He noticed her when no one else paid attention to her. He rescued her from the demons that haunted her life. Jesus changed her life. And it's not just that he changed her life. Mary had seen Jesus change the lives of so many. 
She had witnessed Jesus do miracle after miracle after miracle. She had witnessed Jesus give hope to people who are hopeless, heal people who are sick, introduce people to the God who loves them and has a purpose for their lives. But now things were dark because Mary thought Jesus was gone. He was dead, gone forever. And she's confused. She's distraught. She feels hopeless, helpless, and isolated again. And I bet she was confused because she had come to believe that this Jesus could possibly be God's Messiah sent to the world to rescue the world. But how could that be? I mean, when the guards came to arrest him, he didn't even put up a fight. I mean, if he could walk on water and calm the storms, couldn't he have stopped some guards from arresting him? But yet he didn't even try. He just surrendered to them. I wonder if Mary was rethinking whether or not Jesus was the Messiah. Good friend who loved her and cared about her and helped her out? Absolutely. God's Messiah? Maybe not. You ever been where Mary was on that first Easter morning? Lost, confused, hopeless, and helpless? I think we've all been there. But here's the thing. Mary still cared about Jesus. She still loved Jesus. No one had treated her like he had treated her. And she and some of the other women who also loved Jesus went to the tomb that first Easter morning because they wanted to make sure that the body of Jesus was taken care of. See, Jews in this day and age, they didn't embalm dead bodies like we do today. No, they would wrap them up in burial cloths and they would put spices on those bodies to help the stench that would come along as the body started to decay. And so in the rush of Jesus' execution, Mary and these other women, they were worried that maybe the body of Jesus wasn't properly taken care of. So they go back after the Sabbath on that first Easter morning to take care of his body. And as they're walking to the tomb, they have this conversation and they're like, hey, wait a second, how are we going to get to the body? Because there's a big stone placed in front of the tomb and it was sealed so that nobody could tamper with the body of Jesus. I mean, both the Romans and the Jewish authorities were keeping a close eye on Jesus' tomb because they didn't want anybody to mess with his body. But they say, let's go anyway. I don't know if they're just distraught or disillusioned. I think probably they just don't know what else to do. And so they go to the tomb, not knowing what to expect. And as surprising and as stunning as the past few days have been for Mary and these other women, what they got ready to experience was even more surprising. Because, yeah, they had been shocked over the past few days. I mean, they had seen Jesus be betrayed by one of his own, arrested, put on trial, falsely accused, sentenced to death, beaten, bruised, mocked, ridiculed, and then executed on a Roman cross only to be placed in a borrowed tomb. And as surprising and stunning and shocking as all those events were, what they saw next was even more shocking. Because when they got to the tomb, the stone was already rolled away. Nobody was around. And when they looked inside the tomb, it was empty. 
Now we might think that Mary and these other women would have been excited because Jesus had promised that he would have to suffer and die, but on the third day he would rise again. He said that numerous times, but they don't seem to be excited. They don't seem to remember Jesus' words in this moment. Instead, in their distress, you know what Mary decides to do? Mary just deserts the other women. She leaves them at the tomb and she runs to Peter and John, two of Jesus' closest friends and followers, and listen to what it says. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, that's John. John's writing this and that's how he talks about himself, and said, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they have put him. See, Mary jumps to a hasty conclusion, and it's a wrong conclusion. She just assumes that the body of Jesus has been stolen. Now, why does she jump to this conclusion? Again, Jesus had predicted that he'd have to suffer and die, and he would rise from the dead. So why doesn't she remember his words? Is she, I mean, is she just like grandma and an email password? She just can't remember? I mean, is that what's going on here? No, I think it's more than that. Mary knows what everybody knows. Death is final. From the time that I was a young boy, I remember riding in the car with my parents. And every time we would approach a funeral procession, my parents would do the same thing. They would pull over on the side of the road. They taught me to do that as well. To this day, when I see a funeral procession I'm driving, I pull off to the side of the road. And you probably, hopefully, do it as well. And why do we do this? I was taught it's a sign of respect. And it is. But you know, as I have now pulled over for many, many funeral processions, and as a minister, I've been part of funeral processions, a lot of them, it's hit me that I think this is symbolic of a bigger picture, a bigger theme. And it's this, death owns the road. See, we can try to eat better and exercise more and even have surgery to make ourselves feel better and look better, but death gets us all. And when we face death on the road, we're powerless. The only thing we can do is yield to it. Death owns the road. And Mary, Peter and John for that matter, they all knew that to be true. They all knew death is final. And so we read in this passage that Peter and John decide to go check out what Mary has just said. And it says in verse 3, that so Peter and the other disciples started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. Now, John is such a dude here as he writes this. I mean, he cannot miss an opportunity to say, hey, I smoked Peter. Peter and I, we were running to the tomb, and I smoked him. I beat him just straight out, okay? And he's actually going to mention this two more times. So this was a big deal to John, okay? But John bent over and looked in, looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in the tomb. Then Simon Peter, who was behind him, I beat him. Then Simon Peter, who was behind him, arrived and went into the tomb. 
He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the burial cloth that had been around Jesus' head. The cloth was folded up by itself, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, there it is again, also went inside. He saw and believed. Believe what? Believe what Mary said, that the tomb was empty, that somebody had stolen the body, because look at what the next line says. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. So Peter and John, they get to the tomb and they look inside and what do they see? They see the burial cloth there still laid probably in the same spot where Jesus' body once was. But then they see the wrap that was around his head and it's neatly folded off to the side. Now, here's the thing. Grave robbers don't do that. If you're robbing a grave, you want to get in and out as fast as you can. And especially in this situation, whether it was an enemy of Jesus or whether it was just somebody trying to make some money off Jesus' body, if you were going to rob his grave, you knew that Rome and the Jewish authorities were keeping a close watch on this tomb. You would have wanted to get in there and out. You would not have left the grave clothes behind. And you definitely would not have taken the time to fold what was wrapped around his head neatly over to the side. And Peter and John know this, but it's still not clicking what's going on. They're still very confused. They don't get what's happening. I think they don't get what's happening for the same reason why Mary didn't. Because they had been wired to believe that death owns the road. And here's the thing. You and me, we've been wired to believe the exact same thing. And when you've been wired to think one way all your life, it's really hard to change and think another way. Let me illustrate it like this. I'm gonna have a bicycle brought out here on stage and you've probably heard the saying, it's like riding a bike. Well, we're gonna put that to the test this morning. I've asked Bryson, one of our students to come on up stage. Let's give him a warm welcome as he comes to the stage. Thanks for helping me out, appreciate it. Okay, well, I'm going to ask you to ride this bike here in just a second. Don't get on it yet because what I didn't tell you when I originally asked you to come up here is that that bike is special. We re-engineered it so that when you turn the handlebars right, the front wheel goes left. And when you turn the handlebars left, the front wheel goes right. So what I would like you to do is try to get on it and ride from there to me. And if you can ride from there to me without your feet touching the ground then I've got a prize for you, okay? So can he do it? You think he can do it? Let's hear it. Oh, here we go. Not quite, I'll tell you what, but hey, we're Church of Grace. You wanna try again? Yeah. Wanna do it again? Okay, let's try it again. Yeah. Hey, wait a second before you go. Did he sign the waiver first? He didn't? That's all right, we'll do it anyway. Okay, go ahead, let's go. Oh, that's okay. Hey, let's give it up for Bryson. He's a good sport. Thanks for trying. Yeah, he's got a gift for you right here if you wanna take it. Yeah, yeah, thanks, man. I tried it out this week and almost broke my neck. It's really hard to do. But the reason why I brought this bike out here is because it was developed by some scientists who study neuroplasticity, which is the brain's ability to modify itself. And what they found out was it would take the average adult eight months to learn how to ride that bike successfully. Eight months of daily training to learn how to ride that bike properly because you have to unlearn the algorithm that exists in your brain when you were first taught to learn to ride a normal bike before you can learn to ride 
this one. But after eight months of practice, apparently you can learn to do it. See, all of us have been wired one way. We've been wired to believe that death is final. We've been wired to believe that death is the end of the road, that death is normal. It's just part of life. I mean, we have a saying, there's nothing certain in life but death and what? Taxes, right? And by the way, tax day is tomorrow. If you haven't taken care of that, you might want to do that. But death is just considered a normal part of life. And we see the effects of death all around us. Darkness, decay, destruction, it's everywhere. We see the curse of death everywhere. When we hear of wars and affairs and theft and deceit and abuse and selfishness and pain and sickness and suffering, the curse of death is all around us and we've almost become callous to it. Or when we hear these horrible stories on the news, we hate to hear it, but we just kind of shrug our shoulders and say, it's just part of life. We've come to believe that death and the curse that surrounds it is normal. See, Peter and John, they know how life works. And none of this makes any sense, but they still believe Jesus is dead. And so does Mary. So Peter and John, they kind of give up and they go back home and they're scratching their heads, still wondering what's going on. But Mary stays at the tomb and Mary falls down in front of the tomb of Jesus and just begins to cry and cry and cry. She is sobbing profusely in this moment. And then she looks inside the tomb and she sees two men inside the tomb who weren't there before. The Bible tells us these two men are angels, but Mary doesn't know that. And these angels speak to Mary. They ask her, woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this, she turned. Now, I don't know why Mary turned around. I don't know if she heard something behind her. I don't know if she was scared of these two angels. I don't know why she turned around, but she turned around and saw Jesus standing there. But she did not realize that it was Jesus. Woman, he said, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? That's a loaded question. Thinking he was the gardener. She said, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him and I will get him. See, Mary now thinks the best case scenario is maybe his body wasn't stolen by thieves or his enemies, but maybe the gardener, the guy who is taking care of this garden cemetery had to move Jesus' body for some necessary reason. And she thinks that Jesus is the gardener. And so she says, hey, if you've moved him, I would be more than happy to put his body back. She says this as she continues to cry. And here's the thing. Most of us, if we didn't know the end of the story, would look at Mary's response and reaction here and we would think, yeah, it makes sense. This is a normal reaction for someone who's grieving like she is grieving. But what she doesn't know is that Easter is a rebuke of what's normal. And that's what's getting ready to happen. Because Jesus doesn't immediately reveal his identity to Mary. And I think that's interesting. Why did Mary not know he was Jesus? I mean, 
I've heard people say, well, maybe it's because she was crying so much that her vision was blurry and she couldn't tell it was him. Or maybe when she turned around, the sun was coming in the tomb and so she was kind of blinded by it and just saw a silhouette of Jesus. Maybe, I don't know, the Bible doesn't tell us. But I think it's interesting that we have more than one example of people who knew Jesus prior to his death, seeing him after the resurrection and they don't recognize him at first. I think that's interesting. It's as if there's something different about his resurrected body. And Jesus doesn't immediately identify himself to Mary because I think Jesus knows something. He knows that there are certain lessons we can only learn when our hearts are heavy. There are certain truths we will only grasp when we've been really humbled. When we stop trying to figure out life's answers on our own, when we stop trying to do it on our own, and we have no answers left. And finally, we're willing to listen to God. I think that's what's going on here because Jesus knows that faith, well, faith is built during the hard times. And in the midst of Mary's pain, look at what happens. Jesus said to her, Mary, she turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabbani, which means teacher, Jesus said, do not hold on to me, for I have not yet returned to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am returning to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. See, with one word, Jesus rebukes normal. By saying Mary's name, he rebukes normal. And Mary recognizes his voice. She knows that voice. And she knows that by hearing that voice again, everything is being turned upside down. Nothing that she thought was normal is normal anymore. This is a game changer. And that's exactly what Jesus came to do. He came to change the game of life. Because here's the thing. Jesus never saw death as normal. We're the ones who see death as normal. He never did because he knew why we were created. You and me, we were created to do life forever with God. And as we did life in relationship with him, he, the source of life, would continue to breathe life into us and we would live a full, complete, whole, content life with him. And he created us for an extraordinary purpose. But we chose to rebel against the life that God created us to live. And the Bible has a word for that rebellion. It's called sin. We chose sin over him. And because we chose sin, we cut ourselves off from the only source of life, our God. And here's the thing. We can't generate life in and of ourselves. We can't do it. And so we were trapped, stuck in the curse of death, really with no hope at all because we can't save ourselves. And here's the thing. You can't save me because you've got your own sins to deal with. And I can't save you because I've got my own sins to deal with. We were stuck, hopeless, trapped in death. And there was nothing we could do to get back to God. But even though there's nothing we could do, Jesus could do something. 
Because death has no legitimate claim on a sinless man. And Jesus, as God in flesh, is the only one who has ever walked on this earth who never sinned. And so Jesus came to the earth to face death head on. Jesus came to take on death, to walk down the road that death had owned for so long, and Jesus pushed death off the road. And because of the resurrection, we are now invited to walk with Jesus down a road that doesn't end in death. Jesus says in the book of Revelation, he says, I am the living one. I was dead and behold, I am alive forever and ever and I hold the keys of death and Hades. In other words, I overpowered death. Death now answers to me. I'm the one that is in control of death. I'm the one that is in control of the grave. And whoever follows me can go down a road that doesn't end in death. Jesus was the only one who was able to open up that path for us. Jesus is the only one who could make this claim to be the one who holds the keys of death and Hades. And that's why he's the goat, the greatest of all time. And I get a little tired sometimes of people who claim to be followers of Jesus who just are always complaining about our culture today. And you, are, you will hear them say things like, I just don't know what this world is coming to. Guys, I'm here today to let you know on this Easter morning, I know exactly what the world is coming to and I'm pretty pumped about it. Because Jesus says that he came to give life to the world. Yeah, we live in a world that's under the curse of death. Yeah, this world is decaying. Yeah, there's a lot of darkness in this world, but that's why Jesus came. And Jesus came to breathe life into this world. And his way of doing it is through us. Because now that he lives in us, those of us who've been born again, who've been resurrected to be with him, to do life with him, we now are the possessors of his life and we can breathe new life on this world by introducing the world to him. I'm excited because we're here for a purpose to let the world know that their road doesn't have to end in death. I love what Peter says when he writes, and by raising Jesus from death, he has given us new life and a hope that lives on. See, that's what we have, a hope that lives on, a hope that lives on beyond the grave, a hope that lives beyond our circumstances, beyond our pain, beyond our suffering, beyond our persecution, beyond the pressures we face and stresses we deal with, beyond pandemics, beyond politics, beyond everything that exists in this world, we have a hope that far surpasses it all. And because death could not contain the one that we're following, because Jesus broke the grave, we today get to share in his victory. See, the resurrection isn't just something that we believe happened. It's a way of life. The resurrection should rewire us to where we see everything differently. Don't misunderstand what happened on this day some 2,000 years ago. It's not that Jesus lost on Friday, on Good Friday. He, it's not that Jesus lost on the cross and then God like overturned it on Sunday. That's not what happened at all. 
When Jesus was on the cross, he wasn't a victim, he was victorious because that's what he came to do. He came to take on death. In order to take on death, you have to face it head on. He knew exactly what he was doing. He wasn't a victim on the cross, he was victorious. And you know what the resurrection is? The resurrection reveals the victory that Jesus won for us on the cross. The resurrection is God's mic drop to where he's looking at the world and he's saying, all the terms and conditions have been met for people now to take a new road, a road that doesn't end with death. And we have to be a people who continue to walk that road and show the world what that road looks like. Josh Ross is a minister at a church in Memphis, Tennessee. And he's written several books and he's a great guy. I got to meet him one time on a Zoom call about a year or so ago. And he writes in one of his books about a tragic incident that happened in his life. I've never forgotten it. He said that when his sister was 31 years old, young adult, she was married, had a daughter, young mom, young wife. She caught a rare form of strep and it invaded her bloodstream. She was taken to the ICU. She was there for 18 days and died suddenly. 31 years old, young mom, young wife. And the family was hit hard, as you can imagine. But as they were sitting in the hospital waiting room and they just received the news and everybody's bawling and crying and beside themselves, Josh's mom turned to his dad and she said, remind me of what we believe. And Josh's dad looked back at his wife and said, the tomb is still empty. In those words, the tomb is still empty, during 2020 especially became a theme of my life, should have been a theme of my life long before that, but it really hit me hard during 2020. That no matter what we face, no matter what we deal with, no matter what we go through, the tomb is still empty. And we have hope no matter what because Jesus broke the grave. And it was interesting, there was a period during the year 2020 when I was really down because of some circumstances that were going on in my life and the life of our church that were beyond me, nothing I did, it was just happening. And I got a little down. And I preached a sermon one time and talked about how there's coming a day when death will be no more, when Jesus comes back and the new heavens and new earth. And I was preaching that sermon for me as much as I was for you guys. And after that sermon, there's a guy in our church who sought me out sometime later. And he brought me something. You got one when you walked in the door today. If you're watching at home, worshiping with us at home, and you got an Easter box, you should have one of these in there as well. It's a little red stone. And he gave this to me, and I was like, thanks. <laughs> and he said, no, you don't understand. I give these out to people. I order them. I keep a bunch of them. I give them out to people. I tell people that whenever they need some strength or some encouragement, some hope, I tell them to put it in the palm of their hand and remember the nail-pierced hands of Jesus. And remember 
that as bad as the moment was when the nails were driven through his hands, he was able three days later to hold up those hands as a sign of victory. If you got one of those red stones, would you put it in the palm of your hand right now? Something you may not know is ever since that gentleman in our church gave me this red stone, typically just about every single Sunday, unless I forget, before I come out to preach, I keep this red stone here at the church with me, and before I come out to preach, I will put it in the palm of my hand, and I will say these words, the tomb is still empty. No matter what we're facing, no matter what we're dealing with as a church, as a culture, in my own family life, in your family life, we must always remember the tomb is still empty. And so if you would, on the count of three, would you say these words with me while holding the stone? One, two, three. The tomb is still empty. See, Jesus came and defeated death so that we could live the life that God designed us to live. And so my question today is this, what have you accepted as normal that doesn't have to be? Have you been making excuses? Do you say things like, well, you know, I, I just get angry sometimes. That's just me. I know I have a temper, but that's just normal me. Or, hey, I'm just a guy. Yeah, I look at porn every now and then, but you know, that's what guys do. It's just normal for guys to do that kind of thing. Or yeah, I cheat sometimes at work, or I, you know, I, maybe I cut some corners every now and then, but everybody does that. That's just the normal business world. Yeah, I'm cynical sometimes and I'm negative, but that's just me. Yeah, I always have to be right and I let pride get in the way, but people know how I am. It's just normal for me. See, Jesus defeated the grave and the tomb is empty so that you wouldn't have to settle for normal anymore. The goat the greatest of all time is offering you a life that is so much greater than normal. Don't settle for normal anymore because there's a new road, a road that doesn't end in death. And I just want to ask today, what road are you taking? Jesus is alive. And because the tomb is empty, hope is alive. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you so much for today and this opportunity we've had to dive into your word and study it. And Father, we pray that Easter would not just be a day that we celebrate, but that it would be a way of life. May we go out and live like the tomb is still empty because we know it is. Thank you, Father, for sending your son who broke the grave so that we could have a way through the grave to you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.